Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave this morning. Thank you for joining us here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, the Dave Ellswick Show. Dave is off. He'll be back soon. And in the meantime, I want to fill in for you today. Hopefully soon we're going to have uh, Kirk Lane joining us at any time now, and we're going to uh, talk about the new programs that are being stood up around the state in his role as the director of the Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership. And so we'll have him joining us here online in a little bit. I want to do something maybe just a tad bit different than what I would normally do. And every morning I do a devotion that you can pick up on my personal uh, website or uh, social media outlets. Uh, Otherwise, you can go up to the show that I do here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, every Saturday, which is called KimHammerShow.com. You can pick it up and uh, get it on one of the platforms. But I try to do a daily devotion every morning. And I want to give you just a thought. Uh, it's from the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 6. And we pick up in verse 36. And it kind of points out something that maybe is obvious, but uh, maybe we don't like to think about. Maybe we don't even, uh, even want to recognize. But it says, when they sinned against you, for there is no one who does not sin. You go over to the book of First John chapter 1 and verse 8. It points out something very specific along that line. In First John chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So one of the things that Solomon was trying to get across to the people of Israel at that time as they were building the temple and about to get ready to dedicate it was that there was a, a, an awareness that needed to be raised that there wasn't anyone that was not sinful. Everybody had the issue of sin. Everybody had the issue of dealing with sin. And because of that, he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that they were at ground level, if you would, in starting off their level of worship with the Lord by acknowledging that they were sinners. Because until you're willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner, uh, guess what? You don't need to be approaching God asking for anything. First thing you got to do is get to that place where you're willing to admit that you're a sinner. For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he goes through and he just gives uh, an acknowledgement that if we do pray and we do ask God to forgive us of our sin, like he says over there in verse 39, he says, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. When we get to that place in our life that we're willing to do that, then guess what? God is willing to bless. I think as a nation, that's one place we need to get to is that we need to acknowledge that we are sinners. And when we do, we'll get back in the right relationship with God. And then when we pray and say, or God bless America, he won't have to say why. He can say, well, I will because you've made everything right 
with regards to our relationship. I uh, want to just go through a few things this morning, maybe that you're not aware of or you're just waking up and haven't been brought to your attention yet while we wait for our guests to join us. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting was a Russian shooting, a school shooting. A gunman killed at least 15 people, including 11 children, and wounded dozens in a school in Russia 600 miles east of Moscow. While wearing a shirt with a red swastika on it, the 34-year-old individual opened fire at his Alamalter, which teaches children ages 6 to 17. The gunman who died by suicide was registered with a psychoneurological clinic. No official motives have been disclosed. However, two guns near his body contain the words Columbine, Dylan, and Eric, suggested reference to the 1999 Columbine school shooting in the U.S. Uh, under President Vladimir Putin, who, was con, uh, who has continued to uh, frame the war in Ukraine as a fight against neo-Nazism, blamed the gunman neo-fascist views and Nazi ideology. The shooting is not to believe connected with the recent violence spurred by Putin's uh, uh, partial military mobilization order, including at least 17 attacks on military recruitment offices since the announcement. Russia has seen at least 13 mass shootings since 2020. Part of the reason I want to bring that up is for those that may uh, think that guns are the problem, it goes back to the fact that people are the problem. And in even in countries where they are not supposed to have guns or where they are limited in having access to guns, these kind of things still happen. Another item that we might take a look at on the uh, morning list of things that are of uh, note is that uh, in the NFL, it ends the Pro Bowl after 70 years. The full contact all-star game will be replaced with skills, competitions, and a flag football game. Uh, Brett Farr's Sirius XM radio show on hold amid alleged affairs, welfare fraud. Going to do uh, something a little di- different here for Heidi, if you would. We're going to take a break for just a second, and you're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave this morning. Hopefully, be back soon, and uh, we'll come back in just a second after this break with a little bit more. Good morning. Welcome back to this Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave. I uh, got a host that or guest that was supposed to call in, and so I'm kind of scrambling here a little bit. Let transparency right there. So I want to give you maybe some top stories that are on the news feed this morning that you haven't had a chance to uh, hear about. Uh, one of the things that uh, might be a little bit interesting is a seven year seven hundred year old manuscript uh, that is that has been found, and it goes on to read like this: In Portland, Maine, a bargain hunter who went to an estate sale in Maine to find a KitchenAid mixer a bookshelf or vintage clothing walked away with 700-year-old treasure. Instead of a KitchenAid appliance, Will stumbled upon a framed document hanging on the wall. It had elaborate script in Latin, along with musical notes and gold uh, flourishes. A sticker said 1285 A.D., based on what he had seen in the manuscript class at uh, Colby College. the The document looked downright medieval. And it was a bargain at $75. You know, I never have that experience myself. I don't know about you. If I go to an auction or I go somewhere uh, and I pay 75 I usually have to turn around it for $7.50. But anyway, academics confirmed 
that the parchment was from the uh, the, ridge, the age mentioned, and it was used in the cathedral in France dating to the late 13th century. It was used about 700 years ago in the Roman Catholic worship, they said. An expert on the manuscript said the document, first reported by uh, Maine uh, Monitor, could be worth as much as $10,000. After spying the unusual manuscript, uh, he contacted his former Colby College professor, who is familiar with it because there's another page in the college collection. The professor reached out to another academic who researched the document, and they quickly confirmed its authenticity. And the parchment was part of a prayer book of the priest's liturgy, uh, said uh, Mr. Davis, executive director of the Medieval Academy of America and professor of the manuscript studies at the Simons University of Boston. The full massive, or the full missile, was once owned by William Randolph uh, Hearst, the newspaper publisher, before being sold in the 1940s. And much of to the consternation of today's academics was divided up into individual pages. That just kind of tells you that you can be in the right place at the right time, and if you just keep your eyes open, you're able to find some good deals. Go on, take a look at something else, and going back to that issue about the school shooting in Russia, uh, it does happen in a lot of places around this world. And one of the things we're trying to do here in the state is that we awarded $50 million recently uh, to schools that will be issued out in the form of grants uh, to where they can present their plans to the um, ALC body of uh, the the legislative body. And they will have the opportunity to uh, get grants that they could use to improve their school safety anywhere from hiring school resource officers to including security systems on their doors. Uh, One of the things that's being looked at is that there would be a statewide approach to being able to monitor schools and and do it from uh, one uh, location or at least have the ability for all the uh, entities that would be responding in the way of a public emergency to have access to communication lines. One of the things that's happened in the past whenever there's been a school shooting is that you've got so many different entities that are responding to it, law enforcement, police, uh, I'm sorry, law enforcement, uh, fire departments, first responders, ambulances, uh, multiple uh, law enforcement agencies. They're not all on the same channel, so it creates confusion in an already confusing, chaotic scene. Some of what uh, is being sought for, advocated for, would be that a system would be put in place that if an emergency call goes out at the school, then they would be able to all be on the same channel communicating. You would think that's the way it is now, or that would make common sense that it would be that way now, Uh, but the reality is it's not in many locations. And so that's part of what is being thought of as far as the money that could be used uh, to help bring things together. Uh, Some of the other things that are going on at the Capitol this week, the Senate does have its business meeting today at 10 o'clock to pick up a matter uh, involving a Senate ethics matter. That'll be at 10 o'clock. It will be live streamed if you want to watch it. Uh, Some of the other things that are going on is we're getting ready to go into the budget hearings this fall. Agencies are preparing their uh, documents in order to be able to uh, submit it for what they want to have. Of course, we know that there'll be a new governor coming on after um, the first of the year, and so whatever is presented this time around, why it is that we are a balanced budget state, and we have to have our budget um, balanced before we get in uh, into the next fiscal year. Uh, we know that there'll be a new administration coming on, which there may be some changes to that. It would be my intent and hope uh, that we'll be able to maintain the budget and uh, lower it down so that we can return some of the tax money back to the folks. We are on pace. Actually, we're ahead of pace with what we did at the last special session to be able to um, 
to be able to uh, accelerate the personal income tax um, that we set up during the last general session, and so that's a good thing, and I think that that'll continue to happen. Uh, some people talk about the amount of surplus that we have in the state, and why don't we tap into that? One of the general uh, ideas of the leadership of the of the legislative body is that we want to maintain our fiscal soundness so that we can continue to do things like good good interest rates whenever there are bond programs that are issued which would keep us uh, from having to go back to general revenue to you know be able to make up the difference so the one thing we want to do is make sure that our bond rating which is achieved by maintaining a healthy balance within our reserves is there so that we can uh, have a good strong economic uh, be positioned strongly uh, economically as a state in the event when this downturn comes that uh, is going to happen when Joe Biden the other day mentioned that the um, public health emergency is over well following that down the road sometime uh, they're going to shut off all the stimulus money that has been coming into the states and when they do that's when we're going to experience the downturn uh, in the economy and those reserves are going to help us be positioned uh, better than some other states that have just spent all that money out uh, as far as the peer committee that is continuing to review the applications of school, there's $500 million that was put on hold a couple months ago by peer, uh, which is uh, just a subdivision of um, Arkansas Legislative Council, the body that maintains, um, you know, the uh, practices, the, you know, the uh, decisions, if you would, that are being made between the general session. Uh, peer uh, held $500 million a few months ago when it was determined that that money could have been used. Uh, in order to give raises to teachers. And instead, um, what we did was we put the hold button on it, made the schools come back before us with their projects to determine whether or not those projects had any room in it in order to give teachers raises. And um, uh, so they, we are working through that process and uh, just reevaluating those original requests. Some schools have been able to do it. Uh, some haven't. Part of that's, in, part of that's due to the fact that uh, some schools received more money uh, under the Title I forming formula. F- formula. Uh, and had the uh, excess money to be able to do it. Some schools didn't get as much, and so they had to go back to the drawing board and look to see if they had anything there to do it. We will be taking that up during adequacy, which is going to be next month's uh, report, and then we go into the budget hearings to see what we can do about giving the teachers the raises that I think everybody agrees that they need. All right, I think we got Kirk Lane, who's called in now, so let's take a break from that conversation and go to Kirk. Uh, Kirk, thank you for joining me here this morning on the Dave Ellswick Show. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks for joining on such an early morning. Um, first of all, your new title is the Director of Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership. Uh, before, I referred to you as the drug czar. Uh, tell us about your new role and what it is that you will be doing in your new role as the Director of the Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership. Sure. So the cities and the counties and the state all sued Big Pharma on the opioid lawsuits they received a settlement and because they sued in their individual capacities their settlement was split three ways so one-third for the cities one-third for the counties and one-third for the state Uh, and now the cities and the counties have joined together and combined their settlement for two-thirds of the the total settlement and uh, i've been hired to oversee those funds uh, and the expenditures of that to make sure that they follow the court order and go into opioid abatement as described by the court order. So what are the requirements that are placed on it, and how is that going to you know, write down to the average citizen that's, that's in the state of Arkansas? 
So I think there's a there's a whole section. Uh, I don't think the show's long enough to go through it because along with the money came, what I say, a big bucket of paperwork that shows what it can be spent for. But mainly, <clears throat> in a nutshell, captioning it, it's uh, for opioid abatement um, to resolve issues that occurred in those and described by those cities and counties. Um, so it can be used for treatment, prevention, enforcement, um, recovery, uh, and a whole variety of things in that nature. But it has to go through um, the cities and the counties um, in that aspect. So it has to benefit those cities and counties. So, for instance, it can't go into a state agency or anything like that. The the people at the local level how would they get involved in what that money is going to be used for them when it, if it's going to be in the in the local hands of the uh, of the city and the counties how would the local citizen get involved in uh, being able to contribute to the, what they think is going to be best for that because i mean it could be the wild wild west as far as how people think it's going to be best and are there any guidelines that are required you know to uh, regardless of whichever city or community you're in that these are the things that it has to be used for or is it going to be left to that's each individual that's why the cities and counties set up the partnership um and and one of the reasons that i was hired to to be on that uh, because of my background in in, in uh, working these type issues with uh, recovery and and enforcement and in prevention and also in treatment. Um, second to that, we've, we're formulating a website. <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, formulating a website that has what I call templates on it for indiv- interested individuals to apply for funding in those aspects. Um, that those uh, templates, whether it be for enforcement or whether it be for a general template, would come before an advisory board that we're putting together as we speak. Uh, We will review each application individually, and on that application also it has um, information on there to talk to that county judge or that mayor of that, or or both in those jurisdictions that their project would be uh, implemented. And so those county judges and mayors would have buy-in to those programs. They would sign off on those programs, and they would be submitted for for us for review, make sure they fit. Uh, we would look it over to make sure that it fit into what and didn't duplicate what the state or any other agency was doing. Um, and if it didn't, then we would approve it. It would go to what we call the QSF, the Qualified um um, settlement fund, and that would it would be reviewed by the court. And if the court saw that it fit the parameters of that court order, then a check would be cut to that individual, and and along with an agreement of how that money is spent and how that how those deliverables are reported back to the uh, back to the partnership. How's this uh, compare? I. I- I keep wanting to compare this to like the tobacco settlement money. Uh, is this going to be an ongoing fund? Uh, is this going to be an ongoing uh, issue that's going to have a continuous funding stream to it, just like you know tobacco settlement money, or is it one of those one and done and it's going to dry up down the road somewhere? You hope it would if you know we could get the problem mm-hmm. under control. But the reality is, I don't know how successful we'll be at that just to totally get it cut off. 
Yeah, so some of the funding on, depending on the settlement, some of them had an 18-year payment plan. Uh, so we know it goes as long as 18 years right now. Uh, some of the, the uh, big pharma entities that settled uh, have a, a one-year payment uh, to a three-year payment to a five-year payment to a 10-year payment, all the way up to an 18-year payment. So that money is spread across there. And I think the difference with the tobacco settlement fund is we looked at what they did and what they were doing. And I think ours is going to be more on giving people tools that they need to solve issues, looking at the gaps on what the state is not able to do, uh, things that are evidence-based that work, and putting that fund into that instead of um, more prevention-type aspects of billboards and and, and uh, um commercials and things of that nature. This is going to be more direct funding for recovery, uh, for enforcement, for treatment, um, with a little bit of prevention, but the, the, the heavy uh, lift of it, uh, as I see it, going into tools and things that people need uh, to recover from the opioid epidemic. Okay. I need to take a break. Could you hang out for one second? Because i got one question. We'll come back after the break, then I'll let you go to get into our next guest, if you can hang on a second. Okay. All right. Very good. This is uh, Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show here this morning on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Uh, appreciate you joining me this morning. Our guest right now is Kirk Lane, uh, who is responsible for uh, overseeing the implementation of the usage of the money that has come down from the opioid settlement, and it's going out into your city and into your counties. If you're interested, contact your mayor, contact your county judge, get involved in that discussion. We'll be back here in just a minute on the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave, who is out, should be back hopefully tomorrow, maybe. So, anyway, he'll be back. Um, we've got on uh, on the program right now Kirk Lane, who is the director of Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership. And we're talking about the money that's come down to the uh, local level, down to the cities and to the counties, municipalities, and joining up and partnershiping. Uh, Kirk, before you get out of here, let me just ask you one quick question. The um, There is on the ballot now going to be the ability for people to vote for recreational marijuana. We've already got medical marijuana, which is actually kind of growing at a robust rate. Uh, seems like a lot of people out there have medical issues that need those medical cards to get uh, marijuana. How does all that fit into what you're trying to do as far as um, getting people off of addictions through the money that's been sent down to the state by the people who actually created the problem, uh, and now they're having to pay for their sins, as I mentioned at the top of the hour? How does it, um, how does it all play together if recreational marijuana gets on you know into the state of arkansas and what's that going to do to your efforts of what you're trying to do on your end uh, i think it'll be devastating to what we're trying to do on our end we've already seen uh, how it affects recovery and communities of recovery as a trigger um to, for relapse and so um I, I think it's quite concerning on where we're going the second thing to that is we realize that drug use today is a lot different than drug use five, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, drug use today contains synthetic drugs like fentanyl, which are deadly. And those uh, deadly drugs, synthetic drugs, are being mixed into methamphetamine, cocaine, and even marijuana. So we have to realize that and have to deal with that directly and be real about it. Uh, so personally on that issue, I would vote no. Uh, that's what my 
choice was today, and I think the state voted for medical marijuana out of compassion. And I think if you look at all of the data that's there, that uh, voting for this new thing would be compassionless because of how it would affect those families of recovery and also our children. I noticed a while ago on Fox News that they are now uh, disguising or making fentanyl pills uh, to be disguised to look like candy and have them in candy boxes. You know, anytime you got to go to those levels, that I think would tell you on the surface, if nothing else, that their intent is not honorable, that their intent is not for the best welfare of the citizens of the state you know that they have a presence in and while fentanyl and you know marijuana two totally different things um i will take the position you can back me up or correct me that marijuana is a gateway drug because once you don't get what you think that you need out of marijuana you're going to go to the next level the next level the next level and once you're on that pathway reversing the engines is a very difficult thing can even lead to suicide overdoses um you are a big proponent of um Oh, what's the drug that you were that you uh, worked so heavily to get in, into all the agencies? What's it called? Uh, naloxone. Naloxone, which has been very successful at reversing the suicide rate of those that uh, are victims of overdoses. So, just the idea that they're having to disguise these things in the form of candy tells you that they're targeting our kids, they're targeting our youth, and going after them any way they can get their foot in the door. Too hard of a statement or a fair statement? I believe that's a fair statement. You're also using that to, to try to impede law enforcement efforts to, to interdict it, too. So it, it's a scary situation that synthetic drugs are the wave of the future. Uh, we're already seeing synthetic drugs more potent than fentanyl uh, that won't respond to Narcan. Um, so I, I think it really comes down, like I said, to being real about it, uh, understanding the data, following that and to stop normalizing uh, what we all uh, all realize are harmful effects that harm harm our kids harm our families and eventually harm our society and that's what we're seeing now okay well if it was the right thing to do you wouldn't be getting a bunch of settlement money um, back from big pharma that helped push and uh, get people addicted to drugs so i think that within itself is a indicator of how we need to treat anything that's going to introduce any kind of controlled substance or any kind of substance that is mind-altering into the legal setting. All right, Kirk, I appreciate you coming on early in the morning. I know you got a jammed-up schedule, and and so I appreciate you being on the Dave Ellswick Show with me, Kim Hammer, as your host. And uh, I'll work to get you back on the Kim Hammer Show, and we can have a further conversation about it, okay? All right. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. You too. I do appreciate what you do. All right. Leading into that, my next two guests uh, are two folks that I'm f- familiar with, and it's Kim Schuler, who is the CEO, co-founder of the Arkansas Behavioral Health Integration Network, and Dr. Patty Gibson, chief medical officer, co-founder also of the Arkansas Behavioral Health Integration Network. And ladies, thank you for joining me here this morning on the Dave Ellswick Show. Good morning. Good morning. So what I wanted to have you all on is the uh, that September is uh, Suicide Awareness Month, and part of what you do is to educate people and to raise awareness about suicide. We just came off the conversation with Kirk Lane, and uh, one of the things we know is that uh, through the naloxone that he uh, was so instrumental in getting into schools and law enforcement 
it's intended to help reverse the effects of overdoses uh, that that lead to um, you know suicide. And because it is Suicide Awareness Month, and because of what you do, um, I wanted to have a conversation with you about where we are in the battle with suicide, and just talk about some of the uh, signs and symptoms maybe that people need to be aware of 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 those individuals that may be around. Some of which you may not even know that they're thinking about it. But talk about um, a little bit about uh, what we can do to equip people for it. So first of all, let me just ask you. Um, let me ask you, Kim, when we come back from the break. Um, sorry, Heidi and I are having an offline conversation here. So, Kim, let me ask you this morning a, a little bit about how you got into uh, being the co-founder of the Arkansas Behavioral Health Integration Network. Uh, yes, sir. So, fortunately, um, I've spent the majority – well, I've spent my entire career working in mental health. I worked in specialty mental health, and then I worked in an FQHC. And really, we had an opportunity um, to know that people are coming into primary care, into the general health care sitting with mental health issues. And those mental health issues – weren't being addressed anywhere else due to different barriers, maybe access, maybe stigma. And so uh, realized that we needed to have a broader scope on how we were addressing uh, general mental health, behavioral health needs. And so had the opportunity to meet Dr. Gibson and work with um, some of the stakeholders in Arkansas to identify We have a lot of unmet behavioral health needs. What can we do? And so um, at that point, developed a grassroots volunteer organization that moved into a nonprofit to address these needs. You're talking about integrated health care. Just for the benefit of people who don't know, I think one of the challenges is that if a person has the idea that they have a mental health issue sometimes they don't know where to turn to they don't know who to go to so when you use the phrase integrated health care take that a little further in explanation of what that means so people understand what you're talking about sure integrated health care means treating the whole person and addressing mental health needs in the primary care setting and so a general practitioner and Patty, you are a chief medical officer, so what is what are your credentials as chief medical officer? Uh, yes, I am a physician and uh, have done uh, residencies in addiction medicine and psychiatry and board certified in psychiatry. And um, since 2009, my specialty has been working in primary care, uh, trying to be a resource to family physicians, internal medicine, OBGYN so that they can, as Kim was mentioning, uh, provide more support for their patients in their primary care setting. So would it be a safe assumption or would it be an incorrect assumption that many uh, PCPs, primary care providers, uh, that could be either an APRN that's on the front line, could be a medical, just, you know, medical doctor, general practitioner, how equipped and how are, um, how prepared are they to recognize somebody that may come in for, I don't know, cold or COVID or something like that, and be able to detect if this person is actually struggling uh, with a mental health issue or maybe even take it to the level of suicide because it's Suicide Awareness Month. The general practitioner, just your MD doctor out there, how equipped are they and and what do we need to do to help them if they're not 
uh, in tune with it? Well, traditionally in uh, our residency training, uh, we tend to focus on the area that um, the residency is in. So family physicians and, and nurse practitioners and physician assistants who are doing family practice tend to focus on general physical health. They get a little bit of formal training in uh, mental health crises, but because most of what they traditionally see are physical health disorders, they don't get as much training as they need. As we've seen through uh, over the last few years, and especially with the pandemic, with um, people having increased stress, increased uh, issues with anxiety and depression, as well as um, you know drug abuse issues that you've been talking about before. Um, people don't know where to go and uh, oftentimes general physicians uh, have not got as much training as they need to feel as comfortable addressing someone or even doing a depression screen uh, because they haven't had the training and um, so that is one area that we're needing is to provide more training to the physicians as well as all the office staff in primary care settings Fortunately, there has been increasing training, and many of our family physicians are, feel uh, very qualified to address um, uh, mental and emotional issues and stress. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do with ABIN is to uh, provide training for these um, primary care clinics and staff, as well as to help them connect quickly to the resources that are out there. Arkansas does have a lot of mental health resources across the state. Um, there is some shortage because of the, you know, rural, we're so rural that there's not enough mental health providers. So we're trying to improve the um, comfort, confidence of the primary care clinicians. Um, even so, one of the things that uh, family docs are trained in is to know their patients and to uh, be available to help them find what they need. So if someone is struggling with anxiety, stress, depression, or even feeling like they don't want to live um, and they don't know where to go, talking to their family doc is a great first step. Okay. And be honest with them. All right, let me interrupt you. we got to take a break. We'll come back in a second and pick up on that sure. conversation because I'd like to know specifically how you train the general practitioner uh, so that they can get to a comfort level to recognize it whenever their patients present to them. We'll come back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave today. We'll be back after the break. Hi, this is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick, who is off today here on 101.1 FM. The answer, my guests for the second half of the hour, are Kim Schuler, who is CEO, co-founder of the Arkansas Behavioral Health Integration Network, and Dr. Patty Gibson, who is the chief medical officer, co-founder of the Arkansas Behavioral Health Integration Network. And first of all, before we get too far down the line in the next couple of questions, a uh, website that people can go to check you out or to look into what it is that you do or if they want to contact you for more information, you all have your website available. Absolutely. That is www.abhinetwork.org. www.abhinetwork.org. 
All right. So as far as what you teach primary care physicians, um, because you'd like to think they come out of, you know, medical school or if they even have a few years experience under the belt, they know everything. But the reality is nobody knows everything. So uh, what what is it that you go in and offer a primary care physician to get them to a comfort level to where they can at least know what to do if somebody presents to them with suicidal thoughts or mental health issues? What do you offer them? Absolutely. Dr. Gibson, would you like me to, to start and, and you can follow up? Sure, go ahead. Okay. So one of the things that we offer at ABIN, <clears throat> excuse me, is we offer um, risk assessment training. So when someone's coming into primary care, um, sometimes they're not telling us that they're, that they're feeling suicidal. Um, or they're struggling with depression or anxiety. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're providing some training and resources to increase their comfort level. We have um, brought in a suicidologist to um, help us provide training to primary care teams as well as in the communities. Um, and then we have um, partnered with um Colorado Children's uh, Hospital, who has um, developed a program on suicide, and it, with that program, we developed a manual that we um, distributed to primary care providers and care teams that really gives them um, some hands-on um, tools that they can look at, which points out um, specific ways to screen and then symptoms that they could look for. So if I'm a patient and I come into my uh, PCP and say I have concerns about my mental health or say I'm thinking about suicidal thoughts, how do I get into that conversation with that physician? How do I, you know, approach that subject, A, wondering if my primary care physician actually can help me, or B, I'm just nervous about mentioning it because then it's going to go on my, will it go on my permanent medical records, and how is that going to affect me down the line? Y'all have any insight to that? Yes, what we would encourage uh, everyone to do is to just be straightforward with your physician. Um, in some clinics, they do do routine screening for depression, and they'll ask a couple of questions to everyone, just like they're doing checking blood pressures. But it's just like if you were going to your doctor and had uh, an ear infection, um, then you would immediately tell them, hey, I'm having trouble with my ears. And mental health issues, whether it be stress uh, or even to the point of not wanting to live, um, you know, your physicians can't read your mind uh, as much as we would want them to. So the thing to do is to directly, as soon as you're there, talk to your doctor and tell them that you are struggling and that you need some help. Be very straightforward. Um, although we've had tradition in our society of having a lot of stigma and that this is shameful, um, there's a lot of ways to get help, and your primary care doctor can help you. So the thing to do is to be direct and to let them know um, that you are needing help. If you have concerns about it going on your record, tell them about that as well, and then you can, as a team, figure out what you need. The big thing I think to uh, push out to people is that if you do have those thoughts, suppressing them or ignoring them is the worst thing that you can do. Um, 
and and typically i think most people have a long-standing relationship with their pcp uh that they can you know that they can go to and talk to but if not it's something that you need to at least go ahead and step over and and approach that conversation because the worst thing you can do is suppress those thoughts and then let those thoughts develop into something else that turns into an action that you may regret your decision to do so what other advice or what other um you know real quickly in the two three minutes i got left if you're working with somebody and you're wondering hey maybe this person is having uh you know maybe they're struggling in life just give some of the quick pointers uh, for the general lay person that they could you know and how they could quickly approach somebody and just get into that conversation if that's concerned to them i got about two minutes left Absolutely. The most important thing is to uh, is to avoid is don't avoid talking about it. There is a myth that we tend to think that if we ask the question about suicide or taking your life, that will give someone an idea to do something that they weren't already thinking about. That's absolutely a myth. And so you should be open if you're around adults, children, adolescents, and you think that they're uh, upset and even could. You know, go ahead and be direct. Ask them. Talk very openly. And matter of fact, are you thinking about taking your life? Are you wanting to die? And then to um, don't be judgmental. Listen to them and and ask them if you can get them some help. Um, and then uh, so the, the key is to be open. Don't be afraid not to mention it. Okay. Absolutely. I wanted to add, Dr. Gibson, you know, you'll hear us talk a lot about see something, say something. One of the things that we hear from people who are struggling is they wish someone would have approached them, would have asked them a question. Another point we just want to say is there is now a national suicide hotline, 988, and that is answered in Arkansas 24 hours a day. And if someone does call 988, um, they will try to connect them with resources and get them help. All right, good number, 988. We're going to have, uh, well, I appreciate it very much, Kim and uh, Patty, for being on. Great organization that you guys are running there. And if you are a PCP and you want to maybe have them come visit with you, then I would suggest that you go up to their website, www.abhinetwork.org. Or uh, if you go and see your doctor or you go and see your, your uh, uh, provider, ask them, have they ever heard of this organization? And, you know, maybe get the word out there so that they can help equip people with what they have to offer. We come back after the break on the Dave Ellswick Show. we got the Bible guys. Billy and Steve are going to be in. We've got uh, several questions that have been submitted, but if you want to call in with a question, you call in 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. At 9 o'clock, then, I'm going to have Reverend James Harden, uh, who is the CEO of Compassion Care Pregnancy Center, lives outside Rochester, New York. His center was bombed back on June 7th. After 52 days, they were able to get it up and go. And again, he has some uh, additional information I think that you might be interested in hearing, and you can come back at 9 o'clock to pick up on that. You've been listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave. Come back after the break. We'll have the Bible guys on. Dave Ellswick show this morning. I'm Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave. We've got the Bible guys in today. Uh, we've got a couple questions, but if you want, I've got a question for you all. This is uh, 
not intended to be stump the guest, but I got a question I want to ask y'all about, and it relates to the hurricane that's about to plow into Florida, and mm-hmm. about God's use of weather mm-hmm. and how He uses it as a tool, and just uh, have a conversation along that line. So, if you got questions that you want to send in to the Bible guys, uh, best thing to do right now is just call it in to 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Otherwise, we're going to get started. Uh, first of all, guys, the question that I've got that was sent to me was, I heard you guys talking about the fall, get this up and see it, the fall feast days last year, and was wondering if you could break down how the feast cycle works again. I found it very interesting, but have forgotten most of the details of the different feasts, so... Although it might be a big ask, uh, not too big for you guys. You guys are you can handle it. Uh, might be a big ask, but if you guys can unpack the seven or eight feasts, that would be great. Uh, if this is too big of a question, maybe it could be spread over a couple weeks. Okay, Dave. Dave says yes, it's okay. He's not here, so Dave says the, it's okay. Uh, the other question we have is um, also about fall feasts because it's specifically about Rosh Hashanah. So. Yeah. Um, well, and it actually allows us to lead into what we were going to say we were going to talk about prophetically. Yep. <clears throat> so the uh, the the feasts are known in Hebrew as the Moedim. Um, it's the appointed seasons is what how that would translate. Um, the root for that word kind of has an, an indication that it is a rehearsal for something. And when you go and start in the beginning of the year, or I should say the beginning of the months in the beginning of March, April time frame, uh, and that's which is when the Hebrew calendar starts. It starts up with um, 15 days after that begins. It begins with Passover. And so Passover is obviously the remembrance of what happened when, when God delivered the Jewish people out of Egypt. But it also had a future prophetic indication of the coming of the Messiah who would deliver all mankind from the world. And oftentimes in some of the prophetic literature, Egypt is considered the world. So there's a literal Egypt, but there's also a prophetic, symbolic Egypt that means the world. So it had a foreshadow, a picture, or you could say it was a rehearsal for when the Messiah would come and then deliver all mankind. Then... You have the week of which begins the period of the week of unleavened bread, which was how God provided uh, in the midst of um, the forty years how He provided that unleavened bread for them, and so they're to remember that. But then it on it took on a turn the image of sin <clears throat> and how we're supposed to inspect ourselves and all those things. And what it, what it foreshadowed was the sinless one who would come uh, during that same period of time. Then uh, the day after that begins. Um, the what's known as the Feast of First Fruits, and Paul refers to this. Now, that First Fruits is celebrating the first fruits of the harvest when the Jews got in the land. Well, Paul refers to this about how Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. So it was a picture of the coming of the resurrection and the Messiah. And then you have Pentecost, and that was when um, it's about sixty days after the calendar began, but about fifty days after they left Egypt is when the Jews were going to Mount Sinai, and then God gave them the law, and then God gave the Spirit on the same time. So it foreshadowed the coming of the Spirit. Then we have this long period, and then that's what sets us up for the time of the fall feast. The next one we just celebrated this past Sunday night was known as Yom Teruah, which is the day of trumpeting. You'll you'll hear it, like you see little things on the news or different things coming across your, your feeds or whatever. It'll say Rosh Hashanah. And it's the Jewish New Year. Uh, and so that is considered the Jewish New Year. But the, biblically, it just calls it the time for blowing trumpets. And so the trumpets, um, it doesn't really tell you 
what's going on with it. It just says it's to be a day of trumpeting, a day of remembering, but or not remembering, but a day of trumpeting. But it doesn't really say like the other things would tell you what it was about. So this one seems to be having a foreshadowing, and so we would say that this seems to be indicating the time when the Messiah would be coming back around this time period. Again, I know there's a lot of people that know the Scripture right now. In their mind, they're going, well, the Bible says no man knows the day of the hour. But what's interesting is this was also just like on January the 20th, we inaugurate our presidences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is when they would inaugurate the kings in Israel. So it kind of makes sense that there would be some sort of time period in which the the king would be inaugurated. And so we just think that that's going to be the announcement of the bridegroom, right? We see that played in the parable uh, um, of the wedding. And then then that also tells us that 10 days after that is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Uh, You see some parallels. Well, let me go back first. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was when Israel went before God. They offered the scapegoat. Or, or they released the scapegoat and then offered the other goat. And it was for the redemption and for the sins of Israel. And so it has some similarities and plays out in, in Revelation 19, 20, uh, 18, 19, and 20, where the books are opened and then we're judged and, and all of that. So it seems to be indicating that that's the future fulfillment is Judgment Day. And then the, uh, five days after that begins Tabernacles, which is the beginning of the dwelling with uh, God. And we, kind of, and we see uh, John playing off of that in John 1 when it says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled. Uh, your Word in your English Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst men. But that Word uh, in Greek and in Hebrew is the word Sukkot. It is the word for tabernacling. And so it's also a foot, when God came and tabernacled and dwelt amongst his people, and it also foreshadows when he will come and do the same when he returns, and then it kind of takes us into that um, that period of time. So that's, there's some prophetic stuff there, but it's the, it's the reason that Christians should remember these things mm-hmm. because uh, second not second um, Colossians two <clears throat> refers to these and says they are a foreshadow of the things to come. So we know that's not an Old Testament reference because Colossians is in the New Testament. It's 20 years after the resurrection. Right. So when they say that these feasts and these new moons are a foreshadow of the things to come, we should probably look into them to see what else. And that's just a very surface <laughs> sketch. Do you want to add anything else to all that? Uh, no. I mean, we could go back and talk about the specific fall feasts um, and Perhaps, um, I know I was asked over the weekend um, why we think that Messiah was probably born at this time of year rather than at Christmas. Mm. Uh, And that ties to the very nature of these uh, holidays, these high holy days. Um, And I I know you've got the timetable in your head for... John and oh, then Jesus, gotcha. et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to explain, if you want to go through why we think uh, yep. Messiah was actually born here at Tabernacles coming up in a couple of weeks rather than at Christmas. Okay. Uh, so in, in Luke, when it, it talks about uh, Zechariah being the priest and Elizabeth, his wife, <clears throat> it tells us there that he was in the order of Abijah. That's how it reads in your Bible, but it's Abijah. And and he was doing his time. And what does that mean to be in the order of Abijah? Uh, it's... So in the order, if you go back to – well, let me say this first, then I'll go back to that. Um, so he was serving in the order of the priest that uh, David laid out in, I think, it's Second Chronicles 24. And it tells us there that the order of the 24 priests and, and the, the time in which they would serve in the temple. <clears throat> and it says his was the eighth order. 
and they would do it in two-week periods. And so that eighth order, which is sometime from the beginning of the of the beginning of months in March, April, if you do every two weeks and then come to the eighth order, that means that that Abiyah, I'm sorry, that means that Zechariah was serving in the temple sometime around the latter part of June. And then that's when he had the vision of the angel Gabriel that was announcing that that his wife was going to have a son, and the purpose of his son John the Baptist was to announce the coming of the Messiah, <clears throat> and that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. There is one Jewish tradition that says that he was standing by the altar of incense, which is where they actually had the cloak of Elijah. Uh, so you might see that's why there's a reference for that. I believe it's right in there. But anyway, um, so he doesn't listen, denies it, and then he doesn't speak. Well. It then says that she went and conceived, but then it then it goes and says that six months later is when um, the angel Gabriel visited uh, Mary. And when it says it was in the sixth month of her pregnancy, if you take and add that to um, the time frame of the 1st of July now, then that would put this visitation in our calendar around the 1st of January. <clears throat> and so then... That's when the angel visited Mary, and then Mary went to go be with Elizabeth. And that's when it says that John leapt in the womb of Elizabeth because of what was in Mary's womb. And then so that puts us in the beginning of January. Then nine months later, you have Mary giving birth to the Messiah, which would have been around the September-October time frame. So that's roughly why we celebrate the birth of the Messiah during uh, Tabernacles, which is coming up. Because back to what I said a little bit ago, when... um, John records that he came in tabernacled amongst men. <clears throat> that feast is a seven-day feast, but it also has an eighth-day feast, and that day is known as the celebrating of the Torah. It's called the joy of Torah, the, Torah the, the joy of the law, the joy of the word. And so it would make sense that on the day that they're celebrating the joy of the word, that the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst men would have been the day he got sacri- sacrificed, the day he got circumcised Cir- in the temple. Big difference. Yeah, yeah, big, big difference. difference. But so there's a lot of play there uh, on a lot of things that are going on in the feast. Um, and we really say that if we really want to understand end times prophecy, you really got to get into studying the feast because most of the church has not studied these and don't understand them contextually. We have created a narrative of what the end times are going to be like that I just don't think are biblical. And I think I saw a hand. So what do you think some of the uh, narrative is? I mean, just drill down on a few what you think the narratives are that have been put out there that maybe aren't exactly. Um, Well, anything that they laid out clearly. (laughs) Here's what I mean by that is I think that that when we see these real big prophetic timelines, and we got to take a break here in a second, and I'll really get into it when we come back from that, but the – the the prophecies are to give us an idea of what's coming or foretell indicators uh, yeah but they're not to be a clear roadmap um, because remember there's several times that the in the new testament you see the word that says this is what was meant when the prophet said meaning they didn't fully understand everything mm-hmm. that jesus came to do until after he came until <clears throat> after he was resurrected and then the revelation and understanding came and and we have a really clear, laid-out prophetic timeline, things like there's going to be a rapture, then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period, then there's going to be in the middle of the tribulation period the, the sacrifices are going to be brought to an end in the temple, there's going to be the uh, Isaiah 17 war, the Psalms 86 war, the Ezekiel war, you know, and so they just lay these out, and we just have to be careful with those kind of things uh, because 
without understanding that context of the feast, which I'll get into when we come back, we might try and create a narrative that the Bible doesn't clearly lay out for yes. us. Indeed. So let me ask you a thing about this. We'll come back after the break. So if, you know, if we're, if we're, are we supposed to understand everything? And if we're not supposed to understand everything because everything's not in the Bible, then why study it if it's going to into in a uh, an experience of futility because it's almost like you get nine-tenths of the picture, but you don't get that last one-tenth. And why doesn't God just go ahead and put it all out there so we know when it's coming and and we kind of know what to expect, but all the details aren't there. How does a person study with understanding you're not going to know everything but stay motivated to keep studying? We'll come back after the break here on the Dave Ellswick Show with the Bible Guys. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave. We've got the Bible Guys on talking about some questions that have been sent in uh, around the feast. And also, if you'd like to send in or call in a question, you can call in at 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Uh, the question I left when we, left, when we uh, took the break was this. So we're expected to study the Bible. That's what we're commanded to do. But the reality is not everything's in the Bible as far as the complete picture. Some of it's left sure. unknown. Some of it's left unfinished. So what's the motivation for a person to study and study the whole time knowing there are some things they may not find the answer to, uh, specifically along the return of Christ? What's the What keeps me motivated to keep studying, even though I know there's some things I'm not going to find out until I get to heaven? Sure. Uh, so for starters, I, I think part of that question, and, and that is certainly not the first time uh, we've heard that particular question, um, that if you spend you know more than a half a minute in ministry, someone will eventually ask you something like that. Um, and the part of uh, the response there is that um, why is your study of the Bible about gaining knowledge instead of deepening relationship? Um, we we are we are very Western minded, mm. and we put value on knowledge higher than we put value on relationship. If you don't believe this, go look in the go look at the people who in their professional lives, and then turn around and look at their marriages, and you will find out that their marriages, vast majority of people across this country, are far weaker than their uh, work ethic, uh, what they're doing in a job. They're much more interested in knowledge than they are in relationships. So there's part of the problem. That, that book is not meant to be a, hey, here's how to create a universe. That book is a love letter written from the God of the universe to us. And what he's trying to do is give us enough information uh, to look back and go, yep, he said that was going to happen. It, it's not about foretelling or foretelling. It's about strengthening our belief as things happen, and particularly when it comes to the end-time events. Um, if we are right, and we're going to be here through the tribulation, and I know there's a whole lot of people that just got upset, but if we're going to be here through the tribulation, and we're watching all of this suffering going on, and we're watching all of this devastation going on, it's going to be really important that you can open your Bible and go, okay, God said this was going to happen. But this is just a prelude to the great things that are about to happen. God said this is going to happen, but it's going to work out for my good in the end. So 
as it's happening. I mean, that's the right. point that needs to right. be made, right? Is it's not that we're not to look at it and he's saying, well, then this and then this, because right. too many people have got that stuff wrong by trying to foretell it instead of being standing there looking at it going, well, here it is. Well, here it is. Yeah, and, and honestly, uh, and I think we've had this, this conversation before. I am a little cautious about providing my interpretation of end time events uh, outside of very trusted individuals because you start moving in the direction of soothsaying which is uh, that's it's strictly it's strictly forbidden in scripture right when i start trying to say well here's what's going to happen based on what i have divined uh well i'm sorry but that's outside of the scope of our calling um that that's just not what we're called to do and specifically soothsaying and divining those sorts of things those are those are abominations before the lord so we have to be really careful um i you know i always preface uh, my statements with well based on my understanding and and yeah. Steve will be fast to tell you that a lot of my opinions, particularly over the last ten years or so, uh, have changed as I as I grew in knowledge about um, particularly the feast and especially the fall feasts. I had to adjust a bunch of things that I believed simply because I go, hey, that doesn't line up with the pattern. Pattern is prophecy. That is a statement that has been made by. Uh, lots of individuals pattern in the Bible pattern is prophecy if if God keeps doing it over and over and over guess what he's likely to do it again yeah. so if pattern is prophecy then things that you are that you believe that don't line up with the pattern should probably be checked you know, you know when we were talking about the fall feast and our belief about how the fall feast will play into end time events why well because that's a pattern that God has created over and over and over and over matter of fact he said I gave you the seasons I gave you the Moedim as signs, well, then we should probably be looking at the signs. Yeah. All right. Good morning, Pastor Scott. Good, good morning. I'm hey. sorry I'm late, everybody. That's right. You can straighten these guys out now. Well, that's what I was thinking. The whole way I was here listening to the radio, I thought, man, I need to get there quickly because i got to <laughs> fix all <laughs> this uh, doctrinal the stuff. The damage that has been done it's since amazing. you've not been I know, here. I know, I know, I know. Uh, unfortunately, I what most people don't realize is he's actually being sarcastic because we all see this the same. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, could I just throw something in here? You can really throw quick? whatever yeah. you want in. Just throw a bomb in there. Well, one thing that I think is really important for us to remember, because I heard uh, Steve uh, go through the uh, the Feast of the Lord. One thing that, that the Christians need to understand is all the feasts he mentioned are in the New Testament. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And if you don't see them there, then I would say you have been trained not to see them. Uh, you know, I was raised in a certain denominational setting, and there were things I was never taught, and I, therefore I never saw them. And then the day that I saw them, I kept saying, why was I never taught that? Right, right. And if you actually take the Bible, the New Testament, it the best scholars tell us we only have about 18 days of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. That's it. Uh, we get, have a tendency to think we have a story of his whole life. We really have 18 days. Right. And of those 18 days, he is 74%. Oh, actually, those 18 days represent 1% of the three and a half years of his life. Right. So if we only have 1% of the days of his whole ministry, that 74% of the 1%, he's either on his way to a feast, on his way home for a feast, or, or at, at a, a feast. feast. Yep. So, so the Holy Ghost looks throughout the entire span of the life of Jesus and says, hmm. Well, he doesn't say it. I mean, he, doesn't, he doesn't point. But <laughs> Did he really my, say that? I, no, he didn't. I guess my, my point is this. When the Holy Spirit had the chance to say to – the Holy Spirit is making the decision, what does the church need to survive for 3,000 years before he returns? He says, I'm going to give them 1% of the life of Jesus to feed on, 
And of that 1%, 74% of the 1% is about the Feast of the Lord. Yet you go to most evangelical churches, they don't even mention it. Instead, they engage in replacement theology. They take Easter out and give they take, they take Passover out, and they give us Easter. Right. They take they take out uh, they take out Pentecost altogether. We don't talk about that because we don't even believe in the infilling the Holy Ghost anymore. They go through and we replacement theology God's calendar for our calendar, and then we read the Bible, and lo and behold, we see none of the feasts of of the Lord there whatsoever. The Bible even says in the Millennial Kingdom we're celebrating tabernacles. The whole planet is celebrating tabernacles, yep. but not the church. No, no. Right. It was good for the patriarchs, good for the prophets, good for Jesus, good for the apostles, good for the early church. Constantine changed all that. Not good for the church today. And then in the Millennial Kingdom we're going to do it. I'm sorry. I had to get all that in. For the break. We got 30 more minutes, man. I, I was don't just, know what you came in here drinking. You must be a wired coffee this morning. Good morning. This is uh, Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick, who is off today. We've got the Bible guys in here. Got Billy and Steve, and Scott came blowing in like a hurricane <laughs> a while ago, and just kind of like you know, like the Holy Spirit just came in, you know. And there we go. Well, uh, talking about the feast, we got another question out there. If you want to call in a question, five zero one eight two three zero nine six five. No, no silly question, no stupid question. So feel free to call in question. Uh, we're talking about the feast. I want to drop back and ask about one thing, and then uh, we'll get into the next question. Uh, people see the relevancy of feast in the world today as far as what meaning does it have, what benefit does it have for me to understand anything about why the feast were mentioned. You're talking about the percentage of time that Jesus spent going to feast. And would it be fair to compare that to a, a Baptist church fellowship today or two totally different <laughs> things? You know, What's the relevancy of why people ought to even care about the feast structure? Here it is 2,000-plus years later after the fact. Well, I think there are several things with that. Number one, um, Jesus said, I have done nothing unless I've seen my Father do it. Mm-hmm. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If a Christian's desire is to know more about God and know more about Jesus, then uh, you would want to know more about the feast because Jesus spent his ministry celebrating these things. Right. On top of that, um, his Father obviously celebrates them. Think about this for a moment. Before there were any Jews, before there was any uh even, I guess, any non-Jews, what did God do in heaven? The Bible said that God Sabbathed from his work. Uh, was, that, was that meaning that God was tired? Well, obviously not. If he, if, he could be, if he could expend any of his energy and have to, retire, have to refresh himself, then he's not omnipotent. Right. So, uh, but he, he did it anyway. Why? Because heaven celebrates Sabbath, obviously. Right. right. Uh, so if heaven celebrates Sabbath, then uh, what Christian on earth would not want to know about that except right. a religious one? Uh, think about this also. Jesus, after the death, burial, and resurrection, the first thing he tells the new church was go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Mm. It says go there and wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus is with the disciples for 40 days. He goes to heaven, but he doesn't sit at the first days in heaven or the second day, or the third day, or the fourth day. He waits 10 days. Why does he wait 10 days, Billy? He waits 10 days for a very specific reason, to get to Shavuot, to get to Pentecost. So heaven waits 
for the 50 days to click over so the Feast of Pentecost is in play, which means Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Ghost. So Jesus celebrated Pentecost in heaven after the death, burial, and resurrection. So people who say, well, the law passed away at the cross. Really? Obviously, Jesus didn't know that because he's celebrating Pentecost in heaven. The first thing he tells the church to do is to celebrate a feast day. Right. And and going back to Steve's quote uh, from Colossians. Uh, the, he didn't quote the whole thing, because, but it says, it says, these don't let any man judge you regarding food or drink, uh, uh, the new moon, the Sabbath, the, whole, the feast days, which are shadow things to come. But then the last part of the verse says, but the substance is of Christ. In other words, it's all about Jesus. Yep. So if the feasts tell us about Jesus, then the Christians should want to know about the feast days. Not only that, but the Bible says in the millennial kingdom, when there's a new heaven and new earth, guess what you're going to do? You're going to celebrate Sabbaths, it says. You're going to celebrate new moons, it says. And you're going to celebrate uh, tabernacles, it says. Jesus says when talking to his disciples, we're celebrating Passover here, guys. But guess what? I'm not going to do this again until we celebrate together in my Father's kingdom. So Passover's in heaven. Look, if 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 it's going to... If, a Christian wants to know more about Jesus. He wants to know more about the feast. If they want to know more about the Father, Jesus saw the Father celebrating these things. So yeah. baked into the celebration of the feast is revelation, is understanding, is the knowledge of the Lord. It's, it's, it's ingredients of the future. It is uh, a part of the heart and the person of, of the Lord. Um, people say things like this. Well, why do we need to celebrate uh, Passover? It already happened. Jesus fulfilled it. And because he's fulfilled it, that means we don't do it anymore. Yeah, try telling your wife that on your anniversary. Right, right. Well, I already married you, didn't I? Yeah, and let me ask this. Worry. Why do you celebrate Christmas every year? He was already born, wasn't he? We don't apply the same standard of logic to our life as we try to apply to the Bible. Right. We have no problem celebrating the 4th of July every year. Why do we do that? We already beat the British. It's already fulfilled. Why do you keep doing it? You're doing it in celebration of what happened in our life. And so we celebrate them in memorial of what happened, but also prophetically for what's going to happen in the future. Let me interject something, though, and ask you. When we think about the Old Testament being completed mm-hmm. and the New Testament age beginning, um, the, the fact of, in my position or my view would be that it doesn't it never did away with what the Old Testament set it up to do. It just put a different perspective of mercy, grace, and other things that Christ brought into the picture that were absent prior to that. So observing the feast and, and continuing uh, the recognition of them, and I don't like to use the word tradition because that kind of minimizes sure. what they're intended for. Mm-hmm. There were new things that were introduced into the picture that were not there in the Old Testament because now Christ had come on the scene. He'd brought in mercy, grace, love, and it wasn't such a legalistic approach to observing the feast as much as it became a celebration because of what Christ had done. Agree, disagree, or what no, would you say? No, certainly uh, Jesus was the uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of the uh, of the uh, of the promises of the Lord. However, everything that Jesus was and did it was found in uh, was found in the Old Testament. But we ha- we have to remember that. Um, Jesus came to show us the Father and to point the way to the Father. And if you eliminate um, this, if, you, if we get rid of this idea that the Old Testament has passed away, which a lot of people actually preach and teach that, right? Um, if, if you got rid of the Old Testament, you would have no New Testament, right? Uh, you know, the Book of Revelation has four hundred and four verses, but there are over five hundred references in the Book of Revelation from the Old Testament. It wouldn't be a complete word of God. No, it would not. So what we have today in the new is totally based upon the old. The old is the authority of the new. And all the pastors out there who don't want to preach about the Old Testament, that guess what? You should not get a salary next month. 
because the Apostle Paul said, the reason you pay your pastor, because the law says you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. So you don't want to you don't want to believe the law is still in effect, then you don't get paid next month. Let's right. see how strong you want to stand on a particular uh, position like that. But of course, Jesus becomes then the, the full expression of the law of God in person. But it certainly does not do away. You have to remember, Jesus himself said, do not think I've come to destroy I'm sorry, do not think that I've come to uh, abolish. Dis- abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to uh, abolish, abolish but, but, to, but to fulfill. So here's the problem. He said don't even think about it. But right. not only – but here's the deal. We, we think about it, we believe it, and we teach it. And we teach it, yeah. And so we have really kind of shot ourselves in, uh, in the proverbial – Which means uh, they're all going to have their name changed to least. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. he said those who do such things will be called least yeah. in the kingdom of heaven. I often joke that that is my greatest fear when I get to heaven is when he hands me that stone with my new name on it. It'll say least. <laughs> oh, well, I made it through the door, but guess what? And here, here's the problem. We have just not learned how to 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 uh, to synergize the old and the right. new. Right. And it's because of the way we've been taught. Unfortunately, we have accepted uh, this idea of replacement theology, and we have replaced all of what, what's important to God. Yeah. Uh, for what's important to our country, our society, our religion, our tradition, our denomination. Uh, if if God would not have put it in the Bible if it wasn't important to him. Right. And for us to come along and say, yeah, well, and that's our attitude. Right. Yeah, well, well and we're going we're gonna to take what Constantine gave us. We're going to elevate that to a national holiday, but not what God wanted. So, And, and the, the biggest reason, particularly here in the West, the biggest reason we get into that mode is because we don't like the idea of consequences, right? Mm-hmm. The, the law comes with consequences. Sure you will does. do or else. You will not do or else. And this this whole soft teaching of it's just about grace and there are no consequences, et cetera, et cetera, does not line up with Scripture and does not line up with what Scripture has said about the future. Guess what? During the millennial reign, when Christ himself is sitting on a throne here on earth, if you don't show up for tabernacles, what happens? Yeah. You get no rain. Yeah. You are without food for a year. You're going to be begging other people because, because it, we are told, if you do not show up as you have been commanded in the Old Testament, then you will not get rain until you do show up. And we've had a small drought here this summer. Oh, yeah, and it's, know, brutal. it's It's brutal. Uh, let me just go ahead and, and say this. Uh, what To uh, to Kim's um, point, he said about uh, legalism. And I just want to point out, there's a difference between law and legalism. Yes, absolutely. You can absolutely. be legalistic about anything. Yes. And people get the idea that legalism is they did the same thing all the time over and over and over again. Let me just point this out. Uh, those of you who are listening, um, someone could look at the way you celebrate Christmas yeah, and say you're legalistic. legalistic. Guess what? My mother is. I love her to death, but let me tell you what. It'll be about three more weeks before Christmas stuff starts coming out and the house starts changing. You you put the tree up on the same day. (laughs) Right. Some of you are using the same tree you've had for 15 years. You use the same decorations you've used. I love you, Mom. You eat the same food. You tell the same story. You read the same scripture. And, hello, some of you even use the same bags you used for the past few years. Someone could say, man, that's really... Legalistic. legalistic. No, 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 no. Yeah. We have to open one gift on Christmas Eve, and it has to be a pair of pajamas, and then we open up the rest. That sounds a little bit legalistic yeah. to me. Yeah. So you can be legalistic about anything. Yeah. But if you understand that the law of God is actually – let's just take away that word law. The word law in Hebrew is Torah. But if you just take it and translate it into English and don't go through Greek, because it's Torah in, in uh, Hebrew. It goes nomos in Greek, and nomos is translated law. Torah is not law. Right. Torah's translation is teaching and instruction. Yep, instruction. So yeah, who in right. their life would say, I'm not under teaching and instruction anymore? <laughs> 
<laughs> sounds silly when you say it that it way. It sounds silly when you say it that way. That's right. And if you read that verse of Scripture there in the book of Romans, chapter number uh, 6, when it says, you're not under law, you're under grace, read the context of that. The law it's talking about is not the law of God. It's the law of sin and death yep. that you're not under anymore. Has nothing to do with the law of God. The, the same for being nailed to the cross. The law being nailed to the cross. Yep. Go look at the context in the two chapters before that, and you will find out what's being discussed is sin and death, yep. not the Torah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a big picture, much bigger than what we do, and we just isolate one verse of scripture. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back. Let's get to the other question, and then here's the other question I want to ask you because you kind of just uh, tap danced around it there. Second Chronicles, when Solomon is giving uh, the prayer and the instructions to the nation of Israel as they've established the tabernacle, one of the forms of punishment was that if they didn't do right, uh, then they would be hit with the famine, the plagues, right. uh, the rain would uh, be dried up, etc. you think any of what's going on today has any bearing on the fact that we are not being obedient to God's word? And is God using it uh, as a form of punishment? as a result of how we as a nation are going. We'll come back, answer that question and others after this break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. I wish everybody could see what I've been watching. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know, three amigos, three stooges. I'm not not sure what's going on in here. But anyway, it's a good time. A combination of the two. A combination of the two. So I don't think Father, Son, Holy Ghost. No, I don't think think we're there yet. But anyway. All right. Let's get to the one question that Holland had. You've got that on your phone there. You can read it. And uh, let's answer that. And then I want to save a little time for the question i had uh oh did you lose it yeah i thought you had it uh it says i've got a i've got a lot of rush uh things on facebook over the past couple of days and i was wondering if the bible guy yeah that thing if the bible guys uh that's like pronouncing names in old testament just run by you know if the bible guys might take a bit of time to talk about it uh is this something they think is important for christians to know or to practice from what i've heard from them in the past i think i know how they would land but i'd like to hear it from them anyway well, I think what we've kind of been talking about tells yeah. us where we land on it. It's, it is very important, but it what's interesting about it, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about prophecy, is there's not a great deal spoken about Rosh Hashanah, or biblically, it, and scripturally, it's referred to as Yom Teruah, the day of trumpeting. So there's not much <laughs> mentioned about it. You do have to go to some extra-biblical sources to find out some of the other things that were done. Uh, I mean, trumpets were blown for a call to go to war, the beginning of service, the coronation of a king, but there's really not much more than that mentioned about it. Um, The fact that it's a hidden feast, an unknown feast, there's not much known about it, and the similarity to trumpets blowing, all the the quotes in the New Testament and Corinthians and Thessalonians about the trumpets blowing seem to be a play on this time. Yeah, Revelation uh, Mm -hmm. seems to be a play on the understanding that it wasn't just on uh, Rosh Hashanah that the trumpets were blown. After that initial declaration of the seventh, the first day of the seventh month, um, the trumpets were blown every hour in Jerusalem during that time in the first century, up to that tenth day leading up to the Day of Atonement. So it increased uh, to let you know that it was coming. So with all of this trumpet blowing during this season, I think it's something that we should just be aware of, but we really can't pinpoint anything on it futuristically We can, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can right. go, well, you know what? The pattern. They're, the pattern is they're yeah, talking the a lot about trumpets during the time of the coming of the Lord when the trumpet shall blow and the dead in Christ will rise and all of that in a twinkling of an eye. And Yeah, I think that that's, that's important. I think it's important that it is kind of enigmatic. It's a, it's a mysterious feast. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows exactly the day or the hour it begins because you have to watch for a certain thing in the sky. 
guy. It, uh, if you look at actually just the, uh, the the Jewish theology towards it, they say now this is theology before. If I'm not mistaken, this is the theology before Jesus was even born, and that was that you mentioned about it was the coronation of the king. Um, it was the arrival of the of, of the bridegroom. But beyond that, um, they believe that when the king that when the Messiah arrived, that the dead would be raised. They would go and they would stand in judgment before the uh, the the, uh, the king, the Messiah, and um, and that he would begin to open up the books. As a matter of fact, on this on this particular feast, on the feast of uh, Yom Teruah, Kim, do you know what the expression you know what, you know what expression they greet each other with on Yom Teruah? On the no, no, no. They greet each other with this: "May your name be found written in the book of life." Mm-hmm. Cool. So a lot of what we say, mm-hmm. yep. Comes strictly from. Doesn't sound very Old Testament. Doesn't does sound, very Old Testament. Doesn't no. sound very Old Testament. This is the problem. If we don't realize that our faith is a Judeo Christian faith, right. we'll cut off the Judeo and create a Christian. And maybe that's why we have 40,000 Christian denominations in the world today. Right, right. 40,000, because we've cut off the root and now we're producing some strange fruit. Yeah. If you stay true. hooked up to the root, you will continue to produce the uh, the fruit. And, you know, it's in the, it's in the Bible, so therefore it must be. Uh, it must be important, and you know he he mentions there about um, you know should we uh, should we be celebrating this? And if Jesus celebrated it, if God celebrated it, the answer is emphatically yes. Yeah, yeah. We and should. that pattern, and we talk about the pattern of the spring feast. <clears throat> and I'm getting ready to do a teaching here in a few weeks about the pattern of the fall feast, and then some of the connections to the the future uh, spoken prophetic events, and. We, but remember, I always come back to, and this is why people are like, you, you don't hold a very solid ground when it comes to end times. No, because I think we need to be patient about because it's. I think it's unwise to declare exactly how everything is going to be played out. However, yeah. to get a glimpse and an understanding of it, putting all of those verses and those stories in the context of the feast will actually make the pattern a little bit more clear and I think that's why we've got so much misunderstanding about the end. And so once we start tying these things together, uh, we'll see a little bit more in the book of Revelation, some of these other scriptures. Yeah. But we've got to remember Daniel said that stuff was going to be sealed till the time of the end. What's even more unwise is not to believe any of it is going to happen. Correct. Yeah. yeah. You know, we may not know everything, but the Lord gives us enough to know that it's real. And we just need to keep focusing, keep studying, be caught yep. right. studying we, the word when he comes back. I heard you asking the question to the guys before I got here. You said, you know, if, you, if we don't know all the answers, then then, um, then why even bother? And it's because it continues to cause us to pursue God. Yeah. It keeps us, in a well, place of, keeps us in a place of faith. And one of the things you've heard a lot today is knowing more about Christ. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that is not the call of a disciple. The call of a disciple is not to know. Mm-hmm. The call of a disciple is to do. to do. I should be becoming more Christ-like. Yeah. And that is that is really the call that drove me to where I am in my faith today. It's like, look, when I look around at my life and look around at what Christ was doing, my life doesn't look anything like that. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, at that point when I was having that conversation, I, I didn't keep the holidays. I didn't, I didn't eat the way he ate. I didn't dress the way he dressed. Mm-hmm. I didn't act the way he acted. How is it I call myself a disciple of Christ? And when I started trying to find that discipleship position, that led me to a whole different way of living. Different conversation. It, it, yeah, it led me to keeping a different set of holidays. It led me to, to eating differently. It led me to worshiping on a different day, et cetera, et cetera. These things were in a desire to become more Christ-like, not just a head full of knowledge, 
but a heart full of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Not just a, hey, I mentally acknowledge what he's doing, but how does my life become like his? How do I become a reflection of the Messiah of the universe? Yeah. That's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. When you look at me, I want you to see Jesus walking around, loving people. What was important to Jesus? Should that be important to us? Absolutely. Then the way he lived his life must have been important to must him. Must have been. And it must be important to the Father. And if you accept this kind of phrase, we've never actually heard any words of Jesus. If he said, I only say what my father said, yep. we have heard nothing personally from him personally. It's all been just what the father said. He spoke. Yep. And so the, everything the he said, everything say, he did comes from heaven. The only thing that he said or taught new, and this will mess some people up, is to love as I have loved. But everything he taught, he heard from the Father and quoted from the Old Testament. We think this idea that love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself was something he created. He quoted the Old Testament. He quoted the law. Both Old Testament quotes. The only thing he said new was love as I have demonstrated how to love. That's it. So if we say what he says will be in will of the Father. Amen. 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 I need a quick 15-second answer. My question was... When you look at uh, what Solomon said, you guys do what you're supposed to do. God will bless you. If not, he's going he's gonna to jack with the weather. Does God <laughs> jack with the weather whenever we don't do what we're supposed to do? Yes. How's that? That was shorter than he 15 said, seconds. He said, I will call heaven and earth as against witnesses against you. They are two witnesses, so that's why you see the the lands, the sea, the earth, and everything used as judgment. All right. Tell go, you what. Take, go take a look at the book of Revelation. I want to email you a question. Dave can pick it up next week. You guys can go for it. All right. You've been listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator. I hope you endured the last two hours, huh. if I fumbled along. Uh, but appreciate the Bible guys being here for the last hour. I'll be back at 9 o'clock, and we're going to talk to the gentleman. Uh, that uh, oversees one of the clinics that was firebombed back in June and talk about the update on that, some changes that have occurred. And so join me back here at 9 o'clock for the continuation of the Dave Ellswick Show. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave while he's off on some vacation time. Uh, you can listen to my show, thekimhammershow.com, every Saturday from noon until 1 or on all the major podcast platforms, whatever you want to do, or go up to my website, thekimhammershow.com. Be kept up with relevant information. Also be able to access any of the previous shows that have been recorded. Today, we've got a uh, great show lined up for this segment of the hour of the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I've got Reverend James R. Harden. Uh, who has a master's in divinity and is the CEO of Compass Care Pregnancy Services. He lives outside Rochester, New York, with his wife and 10 children. You guys are busy. Uh, Reverend Harden pioneered the first measurable and repeatable medical model in the pregnancy center movement, helping over 650 centers nationwide become more effective and reaching more women and saving more babies from abortion, which is a great thing. He has written extensively on medical ethics, uh, executive leadership, and pro-life strategy. Encompass Cares Pro-Life Medical Office in Buffalo was was firebombed 
on June 7th and then reopening a miraculous 52 days after the brutal attack, which you could only say hand of God on that moment. So, um, Reverend Harden, I appreciate you joining me here on the Dave Ellswick Show this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Kim. It's an honor to be with you. Hey, uh, first question I want to ask you is, you are uh, recognized as having pioneered the first measurable and repeatable medical model. Talk about what are the measurables that you know you use in order to defend that statement as far as what are measurable and repeatable medical models. Yeah, so um, back in 2001, I was asked um, by the board of what was then called the services of Greater Rochester to come up from Florida uh, to to Rochester, New York, to help medicalize their pregnancy center. It had never been done before in New York State, and because of the litigious and very inhospitable political environment, um, we had to medicalize in a very specific way. Um, so, right when we were medicalized, when we were adding medical services, we were twenty-seven pregnancy centers were under a subpoena from the Attorney General of New York State, Elliot Spitzer, who later became governor and had to resign in, uh, in infamy. Uh, but uh, we, when, we, when we medicalized, we had to make sure we were dotting all of our I's and crossing all of our T's, making sure that we could document not just how a, a nurse was trained, but exactly what services every patient provided to the person. So in case uh, the, the state wanted to come after us, um, we, we, we could say, hey, this is, this is, uh, we're performing services according to medical standard of care and even higher med- than, than standards of care. So what that did for us is what it, it allowed us to have what we call now a linear service process. Every patient gets the same service delivered in the same way by multiple different team members on, on a nursing team. That allows us to look at all the data points to stay on the cutting edge so that we can make targeted changes to the service process. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at everything from, you know, uh, who's calling, you know, what kinds of, what, what services they're looking for, um, you know, and who's making appointments, how many people are showing for those appointments, uh, what kind of services uh, they're, they're looking for when they arrive, um, how, how those services are provided and what order they're provided. And then we look at outcomes, you know, of the patients that came in saying that they, they were undecided about their, the outcome of their pregnancy, how many of them uh, changed their mind to or, or, or stayed undecided, meaning how many went on to have their babies and how many, um, you know, you know, didn't. didn't. Uh, same thing with women that came in uh, saying they want to get an abortion. How many women come in getting, wanting, saying that they want to get an abortion and how many leave uh, having changed their mind or how many leave and then what, what's the follow-up like um, and it, what, what kind of impact the services are the services having we call them intervention services so we, we you know can basically uh, use the electronic medical system uh, that, that's, 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 that's there and improve services it's called quality control it's supposed to be done all throughout medical care now um, but it's really not being done and we're doing it actively and very, uh, very in fact the team does it so well that we're considered one of the most effective pregnancy centers uh, in the nation, if the most effective pregnancy center network in the country. Uh, we, we created the entire this entire idea of creating a, a medical service process and measuring it according to data so that we can change it in order to be able to better serve the patient and a better result in the end. Uh, so that's that's what that's what that is. And and now over 650 pregnancy centers and uh, several networks are using similar. Um, similar concepts and ideologies. So we're, we're very grateful 
for the opportunity to to see more pregnancy centers serving more women seriously considering abortion and helping more of them have their babies. So that's that's a long way of saying uh, that's how we got here. So the data point, <clears throat> the data points that you would be collecting under a medical purview. Um, do you network then the resources that are available? Because I, you know, I've heard several situations where women who have an unwanted pregnancy uh, they're fearful that they won't have the resources available to them in order to support themselves or to support their baby so in the collection of that data then are you networking in your pregnancy centers say with dhs in order to provide you know what might be anything from WIC to TANF funding for certain things is that part of your scope of what you are are trying to do yeah, exactly. In fact, that's exactly one of the one of the. So, a woman, when a woman comes in um, to a pregnancy center, she says, "I'm stuck. I'm trapped. I've got no other choice. I need to have an abortion." Right. And so, our job is to assess her situation and and identify all the points, all the circumstances in her life that are driving her to make decisions she would not normally make under normal circumstances, and then and address those particular things through what we call uh, personalized solutions assessment. Um, personalized resource list, if you will. So some a woman comes in, we under, we assess her situation, we find out where all the all the points are that of risk are for her, what's driving her to get an abortion, and, and then we amass all the community resources as well as our own resources and, and give her a customized solution that says, here's the path forward. If you're concerned about uh, having this baby because of finances or, or health care or education or, or, you know, what have you, then here's a particular uh, community resource Here's the person to contact the community resource. Um, if you're concerned about not having support, like generally speaking, you, you don't have you know life support, as it were. You don't have a, a community of people. Here's here's a mother care team. Here's a here's a mentor. Here's a mother care mentor. You know, and, and and we can connect her with that, and then they walk with her through not just the pregnancy, but but well beyond that, and try to bring her into the community of the church uh, that, that 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 mother care team is a part of. So it is a comprehensive way of addressing not just the moment of unplanned pregnancy, but the context of a whole woman's life uh, through it's, it's, it's transformative. It's not just um, putting putting a Band-Aid, if you will, on a particular crisis. We're saying, look, this woman is facing unplanned pregnancy not because uh, necessarily she did the wrong thing, but because of a culture that's not supporting her. She feels isolated. She feels alone. And we've got to solve that problem. That's a life problem, right? That's, and so that, that's, that takes a lot of hard work, takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, of resources, and we do it all for free. And that's the beauty and power of the people of God at work in America through Pregnancy Resource Centers. You know, recently the state of Arkansas uh, appropriated $1 million, which those grants are going to be awarded to those that applied for them, I think, October 17th. Don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure that money's going to be out there on October 17th. It's a result of a, a good, solid, conservative legislative body and administrative branch recognizing that, you know, with um, – the results of the Supreme Court decision, there could be an influx into the pregnancy centers. And so we, you know, stepped up to be able to provide some funding to the centers that uh, wanted to access those grants. Do you know, and and do you know of the 650 that you've reached out to, do you have a footprint in Arkansas in any of the pregnancy centers here? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, if you in all likelihood, in all likelihood, uh, we do. Uh, I'd have to I have to look at, at our list, um, but we're we're hoping uh, also 
to give these 650 pregnancy centers the 21st century telehealth tools that they need to reach and serve women before they travel from conservative states to, you know, abortion hub states like New York and California. Yeah. And before they and before they go online to get the dangerous chemical abortion drugs sent to them in the mail, you know, so these these telehealth tools were pioneered have been pioneered and and now they're entering the mainstream and we where compass care is on the cutting edge of of um, of learning how to use them and giving them literally giving the tools to the pregnancy centers to be able to serve women uh, through uh, through medical care online. I tell you what, we'll have a we'll have an offline conversation because if none of the pregnancy centers in Arkansas are using it, I'd be curious about setting up an arrangement to where we could have that discussion to see, you know, you instead of reinventing the wheel, let's just put another wheel on the you know on the vehicle so we can go faster. Um, but I'll I'll have an offline conversation. We can check and see where you are in that in that. You mentioned and brought up about um, you know people leaving one state going to another state. I know there's a lot of maneuvering among states trying to get around the ruling. Of the uh, Supreme Court, I know there's a lot of woke corporations out there that are, uh, I won't name any of them in case I misname somebody, but I do know there are organizations, businesses out there that are, you know, telling their employees, hey, we will uh, we'll pay for you to go get your abortion. Of course, I will say this, if you're going to do that, uh, then I think maybe we ought to have the conversation that if you're one of those woke companies that's doing that, what we need to do is require you to provide 16 weeks of maternity leave for those that choose to have their baby, because if you're going to take your resources and pay for people to go out of state in order to find a state that is offering abortion, then I think you ought to, in equal fashion, for those that choose to have the baby, maybe you need to be made in order to give uh, time to those who want to honor God's gift and be able to uh, let that baby be born. Totally different oh, subject. Um, I agree with you. I mean, it's a violation of the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act. You know, they're, they're, they're forcing women, they're bullying women into, they're essentially paying them, especially women, the, the women who are susceptible to this are the women that are, that are financially in dire straits. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna want to take the $4,000 or whatever it is they're being offered to have the abortion. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's discriminatory. They're, they're essentially holding these, these, their, their, their staff hostage to, to uh, their bottom line. Look, you don't. They don't want to lose the, <clears throat> the productivity of this of the of the staff person, this woman who's pregnant. So they'd rather, you know, force her to get an abortion, or you know, coerce her to get an abortion rather than lose lose her productivity and have to pay, uh, <clears throat> you know, maternity leave. So yeah, it's it's very bad. And, and you know what? There is there's already a uh, uh, somebody filed suit against Dick Sporting Goods. Dick Sporting Goods. It's it's a, it's already in in the process. So you know, there there are other organizations out there. Like Amazon and other woke woke companies, as you, as you mentioned, that are that are doing the legal activity. Someone and they need to they need to, they really need to you know backpedal on this one because uh, they're they're doing some really illegal stuff. Well, in addition to that, and I, I just wrote a note because anytime I have the opportunity to have a conversation with you, you know, people like you, it kind of stimulates the uh, the thinking process. We have got to take a break in a minute, but I'll leave it with this thought. Maybe what we also need to do is those woke, those woke corporations that are uh, doing, as we just talked about, maybe we need to force them to set aside financial money to help compensate for the mental health damages that have been done to a woman who has an abortion, later realizes the regret of it, and her life is shipwrecked because of the guilt that she cares. And if the company participated in that process, then why shouldn't the company also be made to provide to the mental health services of that individual having contributed 
to their demise. We're going to take a break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We'll be back in just a minute with my guest, Reverend James Harden. Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick, who's taking a little vacation time. My guest today is Reverend James Harden, who is the CEO of Compassion Pregnancy Center up in Rochester, New York. Let me uh, pick up and ask you this question. You've, you've been up there for a while now. You came up out of Florida, as you mentioned earlier. The environment toward your organization and what you are doing with having brought in uh, the measurable and repeated medical model that you did and you know connecting resources to women that want to have their baby that are uh, change their mind when they present to you about having abortion. So what's the environment as far as are you being embraced, accepted, or is that hostility still, uh, that hostile environment still surrounding you? Well, I can tell you that there is a, a very strong Christian remnant in New York. And I say remnant because we've lost, I think, over 800,000 people moved out of New York State. And I think it's the only state in the union that saw a, a decline in population um, in, in the most recent census. Uh, and it's because of the politics. Um, and, and, you know, there's an attack, an all-out attack on, on Judeo-Christian principles and, and people. Um, but, you know, this is the abortion capital of the U.S., there are more abortions per capita in New York than anywhere else in the country. And that number is expected to increase by 30,000 with abortion tourism uh, in a post-Roe America. So we're already starting to see women traveling to New York from conservative states to get their abortions. And, uh, and uh, New York State is also uh, using taxpayer dollars to, to give $300,000 to every abortionist who wants to expand their abortion practice and recruit more abortionists from other states to come to New York to do abortion. Um, so yeah, we, we have a very hostile environment. We're, we're being attacked by the attorney general. We're being attacked by the New York state governor. Um, and by attacked, I mean all out. Like uh, when, we, when we were firebombed, literally, I mean firebombed, Molotov cocktails, the whole nine yards in Buffalo. We have multiple offices all across New York state. But the Buffalo office was catastrophically damaged the most brutal attack of all the oh, there's been over 70 attacks in the united states since the, the leak of the dot states in in may on may 2nd and uh ours was the most brutal attack it was 30 days after the ultimatum uh from james revenge the james revenge pro-abortion terrorist group said you got 30 days to shut down pregnancy centers or else and uh 30 days later on june 7th uh we got firebombed so uh seven was it no six days later Six days after the firebombing, um, New York Governor Kathy Hochul came out in a press conference signing a bill not to investigate the arsonists, but to investigate the victims, pregnancy centers. And, and during a press conference when she was signing the bill, she called pro-life people Neanderthals. That is the, the nature of the vitriol that pro-abortion politicians in New York have against pro-life people. New York is the, 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 the global capital for abortion. All the policies, international policies as well as national policy for abortion and abortion promotion comes out of New York State. Um, California usually follows suit really quickly after uh, we propose something here. Uh, you know, so, yeah, the, and the, then the attorney general came out. Letitia James, <clears throat> she said she signed an open letter to Google demanding that Google wipe us off the maps so that women can't find us in their hour of need. Um, so they and she they're all using the same language. James Revenge is using the same language. They're saying that we're we're, we're deceptive and that we need to be uh, shut down and 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 and. Uh, 
Governor Hochul says the same thing. Letitia James says the same thing. You got federal legislators like uh, Elizabeth Warren saying we need to be shut down, uh, that we're misleading women. You got the Biden administration. Joe Biden himself signed an executive order asking Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate the quote unquote fraudulent practices of, of pregnancy centers. I mean, it's an all out attack. And, there, and, it's, and, and now uh, what we've seen happen is the, the big tech like Google have knuckled under. They've actually uh, done what these legislators and, and, and Letitia James, the Attorney General, have asked them to do, and that's censor pregnancy centers. They don't want women finding pregnancy centers on, on, on the search engines when they're facing an unplanned pregnancy. They don't want women finding us, literally, physically finding us through the maps. Uh, there is a, they don't think, apparently they don't think women are smart enough to navigate the Google algorithms and they don't want women to have any other choice but abortion. And uh, so this is a big deal. Uh, we've got, we've got collusive, collusion going on at multiple levels. And, uh, it, you know, it, you could say even that it's bleeding over into law enforcement because not only were we attacked uh, 112 days ago, but there have been no arrests. Out of any of the attacks on, on, on all these prisoners across the country, there have been no arrests. You know, and, and, you, and you compare that to what's going on with, uh, say, you know, uh, you know some might say, well, you know, maybe they just can't find people. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe the FBI just can't find them. Maybe they don't have the, the skills or the ability, the manpower. Well, okay, maybe that's true. I mean, the FBI is the largest law enforcement agency on the globe, and they do have the, the best forensic technology known to man, and they do have a lot of police power. Let, right? me, let, me, let me interrupt you, because i got to take a break in a second, but just I want to respond to what you just said. If the FBI cannot find them, that's that, that's as scary as if they find somebody because that means that things can go on. And if that's the most advanced law enforcement agency in the nation and they're not able to find somebody, that's a scary thought that people are able to do things and not be found and be held accountable for it. That, that to me, is a scarier scenario than, than anything else. Now, I've got about a minute left. I want to I wanna give you a chance to defend yourself before we take a break. So conspiracy theory is part of what is being promoted out there uh, and being attacked, you know, by, by the left that this is a bunch of conspiracy theory. When we come back from the break, what I want you to do is I want you to defend yourself against what you just said, not being conspiracy theory, because part of what happens with big tech, you know, whether it's YouTube or Google or whatever, is they begin to warn and to censor entities like this and like this conversation because they do it on the basis of conspiracy theory. So what would be good is when we come back, I want you to take the position of why this is not conspiracy theory. Give me the evidence. Give me the facts. Give me what is provable so that in the event something was happened, like a warning would be sent out or censorship would occur, then we could have something to come back and lean on. This is Dave Ellswick Show. I'm State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave. Be back after the break. Hi, this is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave, who is off on vacation. My guest is the Reverend James Harden, uh, who is the CEO of Compassion Care Pregnancy Center up in Rochester, New York. So before we took the break, the question that I wanted you to answer was, or to defend yourself, uh, how is this not conspiracy theory? You talk about Jane's revenge, and I'd like you to talk about who they are and what their purpose statement is and your experience with them. But defend yourself as far as this not being conspiracy theory, law enforcement not investigating, the governor signing the bill, all those kind of things. Yeah, well, um, 
for it to be a conspiracy theory, there would have to be a series of unprovable facts um, that uh, we're asking people to believe. And we're not asking people to believe unprovable facts. We're asking them to believe just the facts. Uh, what has actually happened in uh, the, the, the varied and intentional three you know, attacks from three different uh, uh, categories of society, if you will, at the same time using the same uh, the same uh, verbiage. So um, I, 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 let me back up to May 16th. Uh, you know, as you know, May 16th, well, you may not know, but May 16th, um, Compass Care was hit with a flood of one-star reviews, propaganda reviews. And this was a, a, a campaign, uh, this was a, was a propaganda campaign that was promoted by Planned Parenthood and, and other pro-abortion groups um, designed to literally have a, 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 a review attack on pro-life uh, per medical pregnancy centers like Compass Care and trying to wipe us off uh, Google. And and we were hit so hard by these one star review this one star review campaign that we were totally shut down, listed as permanently closed by Google. I mean, permanently closed. That's that's how they listed us. Totally wiped off all of our business accounts. Wiped us off our natural search engine rankings. Totally wiped wiped away, wiped clean our reviews. Everything was gone. You were you were part of a cancel culture. Yeah, it happened, and we have we have we have evidence of it, and we turned it over to our attorneys. Um, and, but but that's not that's not where it stops. So we went to Google saying, "Hey, this is wrong. They, you know, these, these ads are fake." And they said, "No, they're not. They're fine." Um, and then they so um, there's a Google algorithm update, um, and our organic this is this is on May 25th. Our organic search engine results. This is not this is this is beyond our business um, campaigns. Right? We have we have business facing ad campaigns that were totally wiped off. We were listed as permanently closed. We were taken off the maps. But our, but our website was still up and running, and we still were able to get natural search engine ranking. Google on May 25th adjusted their algorithms, and our search engine rankings tanked, or cut in half, okay? Um, then, on June 7th, now this is, this is I know this, this is where it gets, it gets funny. Um, we we kept, kept trying to reach out, reach out to Google and get us back up and running, get everything restored the way it should be. And um, at 1.26 a.m. on June 7th, Google restored our accounts. At 2.30, one, at one hour later, 2.30 a.m. on June 7th, we were firebombed, okay? Um, now you might say, well, that's just, that's just all, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, coincidence. But, coincidence. But, I, I, you know, when you look at all the other things that are going on, um, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to think that it's coincidence. On June 17th, um, 21 federal legislators wrote uh, to Google, an open letter demanding that they disallow they disallow pregnancy centers. They call us fake clinics um, from even advertising to women on on, on the search engine uh, platform. Um, then on June twenty eighth, Attorney General of, of New York came out demanding that they wipe us off the maps. Um, so what what ended up happening was um, in July you had. You know, this is a bona fide attack. So we, we, this is bona fide. So, so bona fide that 17 pro-life state attorneys general came out with another open letter to Google saying, if you, you know, don't, don't knuckle under to these people. This is on July 21st. Don't knuckle under to these pro-abortion politicians because if you do, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna start an antitrust investigation against you uh, for for censoring pro-life pregnancy centers for viewpoint discrimination, and. Uh, so we we uh, we saw what happened on June 23rd and June 25th. Both Yelp and Google 
um, started in- intentionally uh, adding layers of censorship to pro-life pregnancy centers on their search engines and then uh, defaming them by, by miscategorizing them and misrepresenting them and what okay. they do. Hey, i got to interrupt you. I hate to do this. I really hate to do this, but i gotta, I got to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to let you finish that up, and I'm going to hit you on three points. I want to know about Congressman Chris Smith in New Jersey and the bill that uh, has been introduced, updates on law enforcement investigation into the attack, and then the other thing I want to do is what should be done to protect pro-life pregnancy centers, especially given what you're talking about. So when we come back, uh, you can give us a continuation of why this is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. And then we'll hit those three to finish it up. All right. We'll come back to the yeah. Dave Ellsworth Show after the break. Hey, this is Kim Hammerback subbing in for Dave today here on the Dave Ellsworth Show. Uh, I've got uh, Reverend Harden, who is the CEO of Compassion Center, uh, Compassion Care, excuse me, up out of Rochester, New York. All right, uh, Reverend Harden, go ahead and continue, because what I was asking about was, being able to defend yourself as far as just not being conspiracy theory, but actually being factual and base. Oh, yeah. So on August 23rd and August 25th, um, Yelp and Google uh, intentionally began, um, you know, essentially obeying the, the demands of these 21 legislators and attorney general out of New York State, um, requiring, demanding that they wipe pregnancy off, uh, off the maps and censor them. Um, intentionally and actively and aggressively. Um, this was submitted to our attorneys. Our attorneys, um, we have m- many attorneys working on this project. They think we've got a case against Google, and, uh, a censorship case against Google based on all the evidence that we've submitted to them. Uh, so they're actively working on that case right now. We'll see what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, attorneys don't typically take cases if it's a purely conspiracy, because then if they, if they file a conspiracy case, it'll be thrown out as frivolous and we could be fined for that. And attorneys don't want to be disbarred. So you've got a team of attorneys thinking that we got, we got a real issue here. Also, uh, attorney general out of Missouri and attorney general out of Louisiana, both filed a complaint against the Biden administration and others specifically um, for censorship and colluding with big tech and, and social media companies like uh, Facebook uh, for intentionally censoring what they what uh, these companies consider to be a quote unquote objectionable content, which is which basically uh, is interpreted uh, wrongly and broadly as whatever they don't like, uh, whatever they disfavor. So that there's there's intentional censorship going on. It's it's recognized all across the country by attorneys, attorney generals, etc. And so uh, this is no conspiracy. This is a real live problem. And uh, there's 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 additional collusion going on between government actors big tech, as well as, um, as well as law enforcement and the FBI. And we're, we're seeing that happen now. And that, that brings us to what, uh, what Congressman Chris Smith and 28 co-sponsors put out last week about, about the collusion and the efforts uh, by, um, by politicians to co-opt and politicize uh, federal law enforcement. So there's a little bit of a cloud hanging over the FBI, given some other things that are going on, and that's part of the reason to separate, you know, conspiracy theory from, you know, things that are actually uh, factual and based. Uh, so when it when it comes to law enforcement, where are you as far as the updating of the bombing of your clinic up there? It's been 120 something days, I think you said. You would think that by now they would at least have something that they could come back to. Yeah. So the the the, the crime wave that was sparked with the release the illegal leak of the Dobbs case on May 2nd against pro-life organizations, specifically pregnancy centers, pro-life pregnancy centers, um, has not been abated. Um, and o- over 70 attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers, including ours on June 7th, um, there have been no arrests. 
local law enforcement um, have made no arrests, um, and they're they're not cooperating uh, with with us. We have a right uh, to to see our own evidence. They're refusing to let us even see our video uh, uh, surveillance. I know it's extensive. Um, they keep saying that the FBI is working with them, uh, but the FBI is non-communicative. The FBI itself scheduled a, t- a, a team from Quantico to come out to our facility in Buffalo uh, to analyze the, the video cameras to potentially see how, how, how uh, they could determine the apparently the height of the perpetrators, plural, um, but they canceled. Apparently they have other priorities. Um, they did not reschedule. So this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. They didn't even, the FBI didn't even look at the video surveillance for five whole weeks after the attack. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a difficult situation. Um, and yeah, we believe that the, the FBI is slow walking, um, the investigation. The, uh, Congressman, uh, Chris Smith in New Jersey, the bill that he introduced, what are, what are some of the specifics that it would do that would be beneficial to you? Well, um, <clears throat> if enacted, the bill that Congressman Chris Smith from, from, was promoting is Protect Pregnancy Care Centers Act of 2022 uh, would require the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security to provide Congress with an account of their investigations, if any, into the attacks, um, all of which are punishable under the 1994 Freedom of Access to Clinics and Churches uh, with, with fines and jail time. Um, the act states um, in paragraph two, I believe, of section three, that the uh, Justice Department has abdicated its duty and failed to provide justice for victims of violence. So um, we're hoping that um, the U.S. Justice Department um, will will uh, will comply um, before they have to enact such a measure. But uh, 28, 28 co-sponsors uh, with Chris, Chris Smith um, are insisting that uh, that uh, that the Justice Department and the FBI be held accountable. Okay. And just for the listening audience, uh, Dave may get this up on his page, but I'll get it up on the KimHammerShow.com. It's got a list of the resources that we're talking about today, so you can go up to the KimHammerShow.com and be able to find these resources. We'll get them up there sometime after today. Uh, let's move toward the subject of what should be done to protect pro-life pregnancy centers. Uh, there was mention about time to dust off the, the third KKK Act of 1871. Uh, what are some of the things that you think need to be done in order to give protection to pro-life centers uh, other than law enforcement? And, I, and I'm a big supporter of law enforcement. I even support the FBI in the context of what they are originally established to do as long as they're doing what they're originally established to do. So what are what are some of the other things that you think can be done in order to give that layer of protection? Well look, I, I I'm with you hundred percent. I, I I think that the I'm I'm all for law enforcement. I think the rank and file guys, the rank and file agents at the FBI, as well as the rank and file uh, investigators at the local law enforcement agencies you know, are just doing their job. They're doing what they're told. What we're talking about here is a corruption at the leadership level. Leadership of law enforcement is is tasked with prioritizing um, the allocation of law enforcement resources, and they have intentionally deprioritized the investigation of attacks on pro-life people and organizations. And what we want to see happen is that we want to see more 
more resources allocated from federal law enforcement uh, to go after you know these domestic terrorist groups james revenge is the primary one um they're the ones taking responsibility for a lot of these attacks they've increased their threats they told us that next time if we don't shut down next time it's not gonna be so easily cleaned up as fire and graffiti which is a murder threat uh we've got additional death threats um where's the manhunt that's what we want to see we want this department is the, the job of law enforcement is to enforce the law equally that's their job and we've got a clear and present danger a darkness has overtaken this country and we want law enforcement uh, and justice to be blind we want them to pursue criminals irrespective of the ideology of the people that they're attacking and we're we're being pro-lifers are being treated like second-class citizens we don't we, we just want uh, to be treated as uh, you know as equals um, because just because we happen to believe that all people are made in the image of God deserving a blessing and protection from the womb to the tomb does not should not make us a target for violent attacks uh, we are peaceful people and law enforcement um, they, they are they are supposed to uh, protect all of us and so that's what we'd like to see happen um, and, and if it doesn't happen uh, we want to be um, we want to see those 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 leaders in the law enforcement like Christopher Ray um, director of the FBI held accountable the footage I want to go back to the the, the video footage uh, did they seize your video footage, or did you surrender it to them with the intent that they would be looking at it to find who bombed you? And what reasons are they giving you for not giving back your video footage? I mean, it's yours. I don't know why you couldn't get it back. Yeah, so we're we're trying to get our video footage back. We we, we gave our video footage to uh, local law enforcement uh, in good faith because we could not make copies of it. Our our, our facility was so catastrophic, catastrophically damaged, as I mentioned earlier that the power was out, fire damage, water damage, smoke damage. I mean, it was everything was just, you know, you know, in, in, a, in a shambles. So we wanted to get the investigation going as quickly as possible and get these, get these people arrested. So we, we gave them everything we had. Um, and they, uh, we, so the next day we asked to see the video footage and they said, uh, no, no. I mean, you'd think it'd be, it'd be, it'd be protocol for the investigators to show the, the, the victims uh, who, the, who the criminals were, just in case, you know, they, that we might know who they are and give them some leads. Uh, they didn't, they didn't, they, to this day, they refused to let us see over 112 days since the attack. And they're not even, they, they've, re, they've refused to even say it was an arson attack. I mean, we know for a fact that there, there was, you know, Molotov cocktails. And they brought us in about a month and a half later to show us still images, photographs of the video surveillance of the perpetrators saying. So, <laughs> we're refusing to let us see our video. And, uh, and we, we have a right uh, to get our video back because we have a right to pursue justice against these criminals. If, 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 if law enforcement is refusing uh, to, to these people, we need to do it ourselves. And that requires, we need to, that requires the evidence. We have to get our evidence to prosecute. And the Amherst police are, are withholding the evidence and barring people from the community that justice may be done and the violence can stop. You know, I tell you what, um, it, it, took, it, took, it took law enforcement, a joint law enforcement task force of federal, at the federal level, just four days to find one man who uh, attempted 
to, to set a, a, an abortion clinic on fire on July, on July 31st in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It only took them four days. We're going on four months and over 70 attacks, not a single arrest. They don't want to. They, we're, we're saying that they know who these people are. In fact, the attorney of the town of Amherst that, that's you know, representing the, the, the police department, uh, we, we had to sue the police department to get our tapes back. Um, and the attorney basically saying, we don't want it to get out. We don't, want, we don't want people to know who we're looking at. Well, why not? Why don't you just make the arrest? Just make the arrest. I find that a little disturbing because whenever somebody robs a bank or whatever, um, you know, they plaster it all over the news. This is a person of interest. I don't know what the difference would be other than they would be afraid of a lynch mob going after them or something like that. Um, well, interestingly enough, that's exactly what this town attorney said. But here's the disturbing thing. The disturbing thing is how the town attorney is viewing pro-lifers. He's, when asked by a reporter why they're not review, why they're not releasing this the, the images or the video uh, so the, so they can get help from from uh, the public, he said it was the publicity that it was he they were concerned that it would stoke violence from the right from the right okay, and then he was asked what do you mean by that he said well you're aware of all the this is a quote now I'm quoting you're aware of all the nut jobs out there with guns and AK-47s bombing and killing people because they have certain political views well it's not. People, it's not people from the right that are bombing and killing people. This is people from the from the left. I mean, this is Jane's revenge. These are pro-abortion extremists. These are the people that are the poor, eighty-four-year-old pro-life grandmother that was shot in the back the other day for being pro-life. Yeah. We're the ones. We're the ones being attacked. Who's got the AK-47? And you've got a town attorney in Buffalo, it's simply, it's simply saying that 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 the, that the that the victims and the people that support the victims are the ones that are the violent ones. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we've got a we've got a, a surreal situation in America right now, and, uh, and 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 I think it's only getting heated because uh, the midterms are coming up, and the the pro-abortion politicians in charge of the Democratic Party don't want this getting out. Uh, and you've got this whistleblower out of the FBI just this weekend basically claiming that the, 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 the FBI is deprioritizing sex crime, child sex crime investigations uh, to, to investigate, uh, you know, political uh, cases. Like, uh, I don't know. And, and then, of course, the very next uh, four days later, you've got the FBI raiding a nonviolent pro-life leader's house and putting his, his wife and children under the gun. Of course, he was released the next, the, the, that same day because there's no evidence. But look, this this does not the, the, the FBI apparently seems to be uh, used as 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 the heavy for the for the pro-abortion Democratic uh, agenda, and it's wrong. Well, we get, we're coming down to the end of the hour, and I've just think about that scripture that you know, in the latter times, that which is right is wrong, that which is wrong is right, and we're there. And unfortunately, when you have an administration that doesn't do anything to hold, you know things in check, uh, it's what your country turns into, and unfortunately, that's the direction our country is turning into. I, I appreciate you, uh, uh, Reverend Hunter, being on, and again, that's Compass Care uh, up in uh, Rochester, New York. You can go up to the website, and we'll have uh, information where you can contact Kim or see some of the current information that we talked about on the show today. You can go up to the KimAmShow.com website and find all that. And uh, Reverend Harden, I appreciate you, and I'll get you back on the show. And thank you to everybody listening today. Uh, Dave will be back soon. He's on vacation, and I appreciate the opportunity to fill in for him today. 